welcome to Inspiration from the Couch. I'm Avery. I'm Jamie. And I'm Lucy. We are psychologists and moms. Join us as we discuss what we've figured out, what we've yet to figure out, and what there's just no figuring out. It's sure to be fun, and you may be inspired along the way. Hello, Lucy here. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. Before we dive into taking sexy back, just a quick reminder that our next episode will be delivered two weeks from now. So we're making that change to move from podcasts on a weekly basis to podcasts every other week. And so you'll hear from us again on Thursday, March 3rd. Just a little bit of preview of the three episodes to come. We're going to do one on dialectics, one on body image, and one on parent-child relationships. This will be kind of what's to come in March. So we'll look forward to seeing you then. Thanks. Welcome. So we are back to our book club episodes today, and this book club episode wraps up our relationship series. Today, we're talking about Taking Sexy Back, a book by Alexandra Solomon. So Jamie, could you start us off by providing a general overview of the book for our listeners? Sure. My very short overview of this particular (laughs) book is Alexandra talks about how to really increase your self-awareness around the sexual domain of functioning. And I like what she has on like page number five. She said, your sexuality, bottom of page four, top of page five, your sexuality is much more than to whom you are attracted or what you do or don't do in bed. It is a central part of who you are. And it is about how you navigate the physical, emotional, spiritual, and intellectual need for pleasure, connection, and closeness. This book is a journey towards greater sexual self-awareness centered on the relationship between you and your sexuality. And I think that pretty much sums it up. Awesome. Love that. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so we're getting into to sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So before we go much deeper How do y'all feel about having this conversation? Like, I'm a little clammy and sweaty, (laughs) to be honest, and I kind of am ready to leave. (laughs) I'm comfortable talking about it with the two of you, but the idea of this being like packaged and heard, like my talking about sex with other people makes me feel a little bit nervous. Yeah. Trying to like block that out and just focus on Lucy and Jamie. Yeah. Ignore this microphone. (laughs) That's right. right 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 between me, my, my face and your face. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, woohoo, let's do it. Let's get, <laughs> let's okay. get launchy. No, no. All right. Woo. Hold on. Hold on tight. No, I think like in the back of the, my mind, I'm like, ooh, I'm going to have relatives hear this. So how much do I want to share? You know, I have clients yeah. that listen. Like Children one to, day yes, could listen. Yes, yes. Yes. Children or are listening, quite yes. honestly. So uh, yeah, it's kind of like, all right, how open do I want to be? How censored do I want to be with this particular mm-hmm. topic? I mean, it's something that I'm used to with working with couples sure. because I don't think I've ever had a couple or quite honestly, if individuals come in and see me for relational difficulties, sex is always something that comes up. And so as a couples therapist, you cannot shy away from that. Well, that's a great distinction because I'm super comfortable talking about other people's sexuality. Yeah. It's my own. Yeah, true. That feels yeah. harder. Yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking that probably has something to do with the messages I received growing up. Oh, for sure. Let's go there. Like what sorts of messages did you get in your life about sex and your sexuality? And I'm like, what message? Yeah. (laughs) Quite honestly. Yeah. I actually texted my sister yesterday. Did mom and dad, I said, did either one of them ever actually give you the quote unquote, the talk? And she was like, yeah, when I was age seven, apparently I kept asking questions about it. And so my mom like took me into the room and took this book and explained things to me. And I was like, oh, I never 
got that that I can recall. I mean, mom might disagree, but I don't I don't ever remember having that. And so had quite a little bit of misinformation when I was <laughs> when I was younger, just based on comments that were made by my mom and my grandmother when they would see people out and displaying physical affection like teenagers or something like that. There would be like judgmental kinds of comments like, oh, she's going to end up pregnant. And then what does that link in my mind? Oh, God, kissing leads to pregnancy. Uh-huh. You know, touching is bad. Yeah, touching is bad. Shameful, so. dirty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there wasn't the internet back then. There was not. This was pre-internet days. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. Quite honestly, I mean, I think maybe probably in, in school learned about sex through like the very clinical kind of health classes, you know, which were very much focused on preventing disease mm-hmm. and, you know, that sort of thing. But all the different sorts of aspects of sexual functioning, there were not conversations around that really. Yeah. Except avoid it until you're married. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this judgment, right? I mm-hmm. think a lot of people do grow up in that more like puritanical mindset. This is something bad or something only mm-hmm. to do when you're married. Yes. I got messages like, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Right. Yep. That oh, was one yeah. of them. And then like, first you build your nest and then you lay your eggs. Uh-huh. Right. So it creates a <laughs> lot of, of shame around it and a mm-hmm. lot of feeling right. of ick. Like it's something we don't talk very openly about. That's but right. There's something really loaded to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to distinguish, as you were, Jamie, the difference between conversations around sexual development, like development of sexual puberty, right? Like like sexual organs and sex, like the sex act in relationship with another person. And I think I probably had a pretty good education on development, but like the idea of healthy sexual relationship, like, I don't know that there was ever really a source of good information, mm-hmm. no. not good information, any information, any information. I mean, maybe like on TV or like, you know, whatever, right. or like you said, like hearing the, the, these old adages, but there was not like a logical display of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really just don't think that was, that existed. Not this comprehensive, like that definition you just read about the book and mm-hmm. kind of what sex and sexuality is like. We're not taught that. Right. No. And even you talk about like naming the parts of the body, like very scientific puberty focus. Like there's been studies that people are really horrible at like naming parts of the body. And (laughs) I will kid you not. I read a different sex related book in the fall called Come As You Are, which was great. But I had no idea that it was called a vulva, the lady parts. I always thought vagina, right? I'm like, I don't even know the right words. And I have a friggin' PhD in psychology. Like, and how? you have one. Right. Yeah. And I have one. Exactly. Owner's <laughs> manual. Yeah. yeah. Which is just shocking. Mm-hmm. And I think also in our culture, I think that there's kind of polar messages. So either we get the message that sex is kind of titillating in some way, right? So it's over-sexualized, mm-hmm. hyper-sexualized. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, we have this kind of taboo puritanical mindset. And so very extreme things are what tend to get like the most attention. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I think that all kind of shrouded in this like shame piece. I think we all grew up in a similar time frame and like the, we kind of came of age in like the late eighties, early Mm nineties. And I think especially during that time, it was very much like it felt like the roles were that it was women's job to kind of stay pure Right. And it was men's job to kind of be the aggressor. Mm-hmm. And you were, I mean, there were things like purity rings. There was, you know, purity taught in churches and schools. And it was like very much felt like the female job to remain pure and to kind of manage all of that, which is kind of steeped in shame. Right? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. 
So when we think about the book, what are some of your favorite takeaways from the book? I love right at the beginning, this diagram that she has, which really outlines and is is sort of kind of the overall outline for her book, where she talks about the seven aspects Mm. of sexual self-awareness. We're saying you may get the physical education taught to Mm -hmm. you. Kind of. Yeah, kind (laughs) of. Kind of, sort of. Yeah. It depends. But these other aspects, developmental aspect, mental, physical, Mm -hmm. emotional, relational, and spiritual, like that is, you know, something really that was new for me, just really thinking deeply about all of these different aspects. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the framework that she provides. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I wrote that down as well. And I also kind of just like this idea. I think the title, Taking Sexy Back, is this idea of like your own sexy, right? Like your own. And she calls it that in the book, like your sexy. sexy. (laughs) Yeah. And I just kind of love this because it feels kind of playful and kind of fun. I think it's with the shame-based, I guess, maybe background of like, it's really easy to get like squeamish and icky feeling or uncomfortable or like take it too seriously or not. And it just kind of feels very like casual and playful, but also empowering of like, this is my sexy, right? That I can have this part of myself that I can bring to the light and not have to feel in shame about it. Yeah. yeah. And she really talks about that journey of like getting to know your sexy, yes, right? Yes. And then how do you bring that part of you into the world and into your relationships and, you know, get really familiar and curious about it. That's right. I loved that idea of like your sexy. One of the quotes I wrote down, she was talking about like an interaction I think she had had with a patient and she said, your body is brilliant. Let's see what happens if we work with your body's data instead of against it. And so this idea that like your body kind of sends you these messages and like to interact with that versus kind of shutting it down or letting embarrassment or shame not allow you to get those messages. Yeah, I really like that. Definitely. She talks to, and I found this so helpful, not only with regards to sex and sexuality, but life more generally. But she says, and this is in the beginning too, that you can come at the world from either fear or love, Mm -hmm. right? And so fear, you know, tends to be associated with the guilt and shame and you've got love on the other side. Experiences fueled by love sound like yes, right? Mm -hmm. And then the fear, you know, how do we know when fear is at play? Mm -hmm. What do y'all hear for yourselves and with your clients when there's more of this fear-based approach, around life in general or sex more specifically? There is a an incongruence between what someone is feeling on the inside and maybe what they're agreeing to or the behaviors that they're engaging or not engaging in on the outside. When fear is in charge. When fear is in charge, uh-huh. yes. Mm-hmm. Whereas when it's love-based, I see congruency between what somebody is wanting, desiring, and what they're asking for or what they're advocating for themselves. And I think fear, I think that this comes up a lot, probably at all ages, but especially younger people, right? So like how often do you hear people talk about like, oh, if I don't sleep with him, then he's not going to like me or we did it once. So therefore like I have to do it again. He's not going to buy the cow if he gets the milk. That is a fear-based one too. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's very externally oriented, right? So rather than really Mm -hmm. checking in on what you're wanting, you're concerned about what the other person is going to think, feel, do Mm -hmm. about you or Mm -hmm. society in general or whoever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that she makes this kind of brazen statement that 
good sex can't really exist without love. And it's kind of this idea, not that you have to be in love with the person in a deep and like intimate way, but just this idea that it coming from love, that that's really where the pleasure and the safety exists when it's counterbalanced with this fear that really, and I think about consent. I mean, I, when, when I was thinking about the fear, I'm thinking about like, I think consent is something that gets thankfully a lot of communication around consent and how, like what real consent looks like. And, you know, first you have to kind of like go inside and kind of figure out, do you consent and how do you consent and what do you consent to? And then it's a conversation as well. And I think about consent being as a really nice offset to fear, that kind of clear communication about consent. Other ideas from the books, things you like, things you didn't like. So one mantra that she mentioned that I really liked, she said, I enter into a sexual experience if and only if my pleasure and my safety are central features of the experience. And again, that kind of goes back to that consent, but also like there's no fear there. It's pleasure, Mm -hmm. safety that feels like it's coming from a place of love and having that kind of empowerment to be able to make that decision for yourself because nowhere in here is unless my partner is going to leave me if I don't have sex or unless my partner is going to judge me in some way. Like this is all an internal decision. And I just love that, that it's about you and can be more internal. And not about performing. That's right. right. So yes. I think what strikes me about this book, and then you have like Mating and Captivity by Esther mm-hmm. Perel, you have Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. So some of these books that are similar in character, but they talk a lot about pleasure. And reading them, I realized like, I don't, think much about pleasure in my life. I think I've, I've kind of like put pleasure over in some other bucket of things that like, like you need to be productive and you need to like do the like things the you're supposed to do. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. So there's something kind of sticky that's got me curious about like, what is it about this pleasure thing and what feels like dangerous about that maybe or extravagant? Yeah. Yeah. And she really, I think she does a great job of normalizing it, you know, just really normalizing it as, Pleasure as a birthright. And oh, yeah, yeah. I have this great quote that I'm going to (laughs) read. I love that she talks about the birthright and that she actually even says, she says, clitorises have zero Fs to give about anything besides feeling good. Let in the awareness that your body is designed for pleasure. Pleasure is quite literally your birthright. And it's like, oh, that, that was sticky too. I even wrote it down, but it was like, yeah, there's pleasure is important. So yeah. speaking of the clitoris, by the way, fun fact that I learned in this book. So one, on typical anatomy that you would learn about in sex ed, that's usually not there. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's just not. The, so the one thing that is designed solely for pleasure is like not included in our Erased. basic instruction around kind no, of development. No weird feelings about pleasure. Exactly. All of us. It's exactly. Like it wasn't even worth getting on the chart. No. And then the crazy thing, they said that newer research has shown kind of just how extensive that part of your body yeah. is. And that the first drawing and article was published in 1998. That was not that long ago. I, I was in my that. 20s. Yeah. yeah. I had when the to, clitoris got to show up. Yes. A, a diagram. Yes. Yeah. yeah that t- date for that, I did a double take. Like, uh-huh. is this printed correctly? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Did you check into it? We pr- maybe should check. I, I, I didn't. <laughs> I actually didn't. I just, I, I figured like, Alexandra Solomon probably has it down and I'm sure it's probably accurate. So I'm well, I'll just together take a with the rest of what she was saying, yeah. which is that this pleasure center really was overlooked as an important facet And to the point that it was completely eliminated for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Which is crazy. Yeah. 
One of the other ideas she brings up in this book, she talks about sexual desire. And I love this. And so once again, she pulls from a lot of Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, but I think it's worth mentioning on this podcast because I found these ideas fascinating, right? So in the book, Come As You Are, which is referenced in Taking Sexy Back, there's two ideas that I found really, really helpful. So one is this idea that there's this dual control model when we think about our desire and our body's response, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the idea that we have an accelerator and we have a brake pedal, yep. right? And some like factors turn on our accelerator, which kind of get us turned on and, and increase desire and the brake pedal like shuts it down. And everyone's accelerator and brake is different in terms of how sensitive they are, in terms of things that impact them. What do you all think of this idea? Does it kind of fit for you? What are your thoughts? I think it's great. It's something that I talk about with couples because a lot of times what happens is, you know, if there's a partner maybe that has, say, uh, (laughs) they're used to tapping, you know, tapping on the the gas pedal versus the other one has a tendency to their brake is more engaged. What happens is I see couples start to place blame on each other, on one person or the other, and they come up with all kinds of stories around that versus getting really curious and kind of compassionate about how this person functions sexually, because we're all so different when it comes to this. I love that it's this kind of like objective metaphor because there's no blame. It's not like and accelerators are better. <laughs> like right. or only if you have a good break, are you a good person? Like it's so because I think sex and shame and self-worth and blame and self-esteem are all so wrapped up together that I love this metaphor that makes it very objective of just, it just is like, this is just different. Just like so many other things are different for people, hair color, eye color, height. I mean, there's so many different things that this is a nice way to kind of objectify this dynamic that I think really gets bound up for people and gets so personal and feels so much more emotional. Yeah. And it really points the way for some, not only nice understanding, but nice action steps, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say, there's a couple struggling, you know, with with sexual desire, like not really in the mood, not having a lot of sex, right? And they might draw the conclusion, like there's something wrong in our relationship. Mm-hmm. This is really bad. You know, we don't fit together. Like all of these things mm-hmm. where if you start to think about, okay, let's get curious. Like what taps on your accelerator? What taps on your brake? Oh, you have like an infant that you're nursing like every three hours, right? Or you have like six kids running around or you have mm-hmm. like a job and you're working 20 hours a day. Like, does that turn on the accelerator or the brake? Right. right. And if you were to want to, you know, engage more with your desire, mm-hmm. how do you intentionally turn on the accelerator and like back off on the brake? Right. Right. It gives a, a place for you to intervene. Well, and also to that topic of sexual desire she differentiates or the researchers, more recent researchers differentiate between different types of sexual that desire. That was my second point. Yeah. yeah no, tell I, us, Jamie. Yeah, I, I think that's great. She talks about two types of sexual desire, one being spontaneous sexual desire. So this is where kind of it comes out of the blue, like in forms of sexual urges or like a physiological horniness that people have. And then the other piece is responsive desire, which is context specific, mm. right? And she says it could be like, for example, you and your partner are watching a movie and maybe you're not really feeling that spontaneous desire and your partner reaches over and starts to be like physically affectionate with you. And maybe you've got some thoughts in your head like, eh, I don't really feel like it. I'm not really in the mood. I kind of have a headache, but uh, I don't know. This is kind of nice. And then sort of the mm-hmm. more that that goes on, then it's like, oh, okay. Then the desire kind of really starts to arrive. Like it catches up. You've got yeah. to like get into the action a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're being responsive 
rather than it being more of an internal kind of thing where you're already sort of turned on, it's you're responding to the external context of what's going on around you, which I think is really important, like for for couples to talk about those things, like where do they tend to fall, you know, mm-hmm. and usually it's it's a, a combination of things, at least for, from people that I see coming into my office. But I think just providing that education for individuals, it's really important rather than just narrowing it down to black and white of like, oh, you know, he's got a high sex drive or a libido and she has a low one. Well, no, mm-hmm. it's a lot more nuanced mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of thinking about the different things that we've brought up in the previous few podcasts about like requests and knowing what your needs and wants are and feeling empowered to ask for those things in a way that increases the chances of you getting them. I think sex is such a it's like a minefield with that, that I think a lot of us have a really hard time even getting comfortable with ourselves. Like what are our desires? What are our needs? And then to, to request that is so vulnerable. And especially that kind of like, well, he should know, or they should know. I think that certainly gets bound up, especially around sex as well of like, oh, well, you're not finding me attractive or this thing about our sexual relationship means this about our love life or our, you know, intimacy, or it can get really complicated. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So there was a really great poem in here. And I think we all kind of like Loved it. And so Avery, do you want to read it? I will read it. Who's it by? Do you know? It's Holly Holden. And the name of it is, Could You Just Love Me Like This? So I'll start it. So today I asked my body what she needed, which is a big deal considering my journey of not really asking that much. I thought she might need more water or protein or greens or yoga or supplements or movement. But as I stood in the shower, reflecting on her stretch marks, her roundness where I would like flatness, her softness where I would like firmness, all of those conditioned wishes that form a bundle of never quite rightness. She whispered very gently, could you just love me like this? So powerful. I get like chills thinking about it. We'll post that on our website because I think it's such a lovely poem. And I think that was in the chapter that was talking a little bit about kind of body acceptance and body image Mm -hmm. and some of those facets that kind of play into our sexuality and the sense of our sexy. That's right. And talk about a brake pedal. I mean, if you are having a negative, critical view of your own body, that could be a really big like interfering factor. Yeah, definitely. Definitely hits the brakes. For sure. For sure. And so she kind of talks about this idea of like reclamation and a couple of quotes that she uses that I really like. One is, shame, which we've kind of been talking about, shame cannot survive the warm glow of connection. Mm. And so this idea of like connecting with other person, I mean, certainly is important, but also this reclamation of your own body and your body love. And she asks a couple of questions, which I really liked. One is how big of a piece of the pie is your appearance right now? So kind of thinking about like, are there aspects of yourself that you're neglecting because you are so focused on your appearance or even things, I think, especially after the holidays, one of the quotes she says of like that talk, right. Of like, Oh, I've gained so much weight over the holidays. I don't Mm -hmm. deserve to snack. I don't deserve to do that. It kind of reflects this idea that our self-worth is related to the scale related to our thoughts about physical appearance and talk about a brake pedal. I mean, that is just a huge slamming on pulling up the emergency brake when we get that kind of critical self-talk. So if we think about intimate relationships, 
What are some common issues around sex that come up in intimate relationships? One thing that she certainly talked about that I think is maybe more of a an issue that comes up for my younger patients is this idea, varying terms for it, but like hookup culture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether you want to call it friends with benefits, whether whatever you want to call it, but like sex outside of a relationship, outside of a committed relationship. And I think that that can get really complicated and thorny. I mean, I I think especially, and she kind of talks about that, about what it means for each person, what it means for the relationship, how possible is it really to have sex with somebody over time without developing feelings? How healthy is that maybe to not have feelings? So there's just it's complicated. I think that makes it a really complicated situation. Yeah. I love what she distinguished there. She mm-hmm. said, it's not so much about disconnecting sex from commitment that's the problem. It's that hookup culture disconnects sex from emotions. Yes. That's right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that. And I, I like how she differentiates too between hookup culture, the hookup sex and self-aware casual sex and what Mm. the differences Mm. are there with the self-aware casual sex. That is more, you are tuned into what you're wanting, which is, you know, you want to have this physical connection with, with someone versus hookup sex. A lot of times is driven by external kinds of of forces and stories. And, and it can mean a whole heck of a lot of different things Mm -hmm. too. You know, when I have clients come in and they talk about hooking up, you know, one of the questions I have to ask is like, so what do you mean by that? Because it can mean a whole lot of Mm. different things. You know, we've been talking about, or I've been talking about with clients, you know, there are lots of different aspects of sexual functioning. So what is it? Like, what are you? What does it mean to you? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. What does it mean to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think so many times we get into this notion that it's we're talking about vaginas and penises and <laughs> penetrative sex, quite honestly, but there's a whole gamut of sexual behaviors that are meaningful in different ways to different people. This other mm-hmm. point about hookup culture, too, is that often it happens in some sort of numbed state. Yes. Yeah. Right? So we go yeah. to the bar, we get hammered, I go home with someone, you know, like mm-hmm. leave first thing in the morning, right? So it's there's a sense of disconnection around it. And I think she's really advocating for a sexuality that is very connected and like tuned in. Right. Yeah. Right. And one thing I'll talk to patients about is because I think sometimes sex comes from, like you said, numbing out, but just kind of like in this rapid state where that you don't really have time to like stop and be still and feel even your feelings, much less like interact around what the feeling, I mean, like it's, it can go really fast. And so a lot of times, especially with my younger patients, we'll talk about like, let's decide here in the light of day in my office, when you're sober and awake and alert, what are you comfortable with? What are your decisions for you that you feel comfortable with? Are you comfortable having sex with someone that you've met recently? Are you comfortable having sex without birth control? Are you comfortable having sex without? Let's just decide where, what are your values? Not your parents' values, not your church's values, not, I mean, not all these values that are rained down on you necessarily, but your own values. What is your decision around it? And then how do we give you the tools to like, make sure that that happens? I think that there are so many messages and so many pressures in the moment, whether it's alcohol, whether it's trying to mind read, whether it's I feel like I should ought to have to, that really, I think the first step in really good consent is figuring out what's a fit for you, 
finding your voice on how to communicate that to the other person. And then hopefully the other person has been kind of educated in this way too, and is, is going to have that communication as well, that it's goes, it's two way. And then it can change. That's yes. right. That's the other thing that I That's talk right. a lot with younger people is, okay, so just you cross some line one time, like doesn't mm-hmm. mean you have to do it every time. No, like we can right. back that shit up. We can turn it totally. around. Like totally. Every time's a new time that you can choose something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But sometimes they don't feel that permission to to do mm-hmm. that. And I mean, that's not just for like young people that are dating. I mean, that that is for everyone. That is for everyone always. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I like she makes the comment that even like the most aware, good intentioned individuals that that are maybe having casual sex where it's really well articulated, it doesn't mean that you're not going to develop feelings for people. So it may be great in theory, but sometimes it's really, really messy in execution. Mm -hmm. And so you have to get clear on what's going on for you kind of moment by moment. Mm -hmm. And if things are starting to change for you, where you're wanting to move more from casual to committed, those are conversations that you need to have and probably sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. And you owe it to yourself to to be clear on that. Absolutely. To, to allow yourself to kind of consider that. Mm-hmm. So to wrap this up today, instead of do try this at home, I would love for each of us to share with our listeners and each other, like the message that you would hope to give others, maybe your children, maybe your clients, maybe the people you know about sex and sexuality. So if you could like distill a little message, like what comes to mind? I think my message would probably be for parents that shame is not a great teacher Mm. and that using shame to try to protect your child from STDs or pregnancy is probably not going to be a great tool. I feel like kind of to her point, connection is so much more helpful, so much more beneficial and information can feel scary to give children. It can feel like, well, if I tell them about this, this means that they're going to go have sex or they're going to, Mm -hmm. but it can really, I see it actually have the opposite effect. And I love in the book, I love this. She distinguished between like the very natural curiosity that children have around sex and that for parents being able to distinguish like curiosity around it is not the same as readiness for it. So just because they're curious doesn't mean they're wanting to go do it. That's right. And how do we kind of get clear on that? That's right. And and all of that can come become clear if you're having that open communication that's not shame-based, that you can distinguish curiosity and readiness or action or and I think that trying to maintain that relationship and communication around it, whether it's with you or another trusted adult, is so much more beneficial than kind of closing communication based on shame. Love it. Yeah, I think that's great. And it makes me chuckle when I think about conversations that I've had with Grace, you know, and Max, usually the response that I get from them is like, oh, I don't know. Like, like <laughs> The not readiness there, you know, they see like what a big, you know, Uh what a big deal it is and Mm -hmm. what a big responsibility it is. And they get that, I think, from the conversations that that we've Mm -hmm. had and we've broken up our conversations, you know, and I think that's something as parents you need to Mm -hmm. do, like developmentally, sort of what are they ready to Mm -hmm. hear and give it to them piecemeal and that you're going to have these conversations. It's not going to be a one time, one and done. There's no one talk. Yeah, there's no one talk. It's not the talks. Yes, yes. 
yes, the ongoing we're, conversation. Exactly. We're talking. Yes, we're talking. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that is really important that she emphasizes is knowing your why, like why mm. you want to engage in sexual pleasure, because that's going to change developmentally across the lifespan as you get into different relationships, mm-hmm. as, you know, you go through your own life transitions. And so it's really important to check in with yourself and figure that out. Mm. So I think for me, I'm going to steal a quote from the book because I loved how she phrased this. She said, what might the possibilities for intimacy and connection be if everyone could wade mindfully into the waters of sexuality, guided by internal and relational cues of readiness, trust, respect, safety, and care, rather than by fear-based frenetic attempts to rid oneself of something shameful or to cling desperately to something that purports to convey worth. Beautiful. I thought that was a lovely summary. We recommend reading the book. I think this is a great one. I think Come As You Are is a great one. I plan to give both my children in high school, my girls in high school, both those books. Yeah. Because I think they're fabulous. And it's just a very different way of thinking about and approaching sex than maybe what we all grew up with. Yes. Mm. Okay. We look forward to hearing from you. Talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Subscribe to Inspiration from the Couch wherever you access your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. Visit us on our website at inspirationfromthecouch.com. Music